it would be a shame to look back on your life and go, oh, like if only I'd, you know, done this thing that I really wanted to do. Welcome to the Startup Palette Show. When you think of startups, you think of Silicon Valley. We're going to venture beyond the valley and paint a picture of the startup ecosystem featuring diverse founders, investors, and operators. We'll hear about their origin stories that shape them, the highlights, the lowlights, the best practice, and their visions for the future. Join me as we get a front seat to witness the phenomenal role of these pathbreakers. I'm your host, Preeti Mohan. Let's get started. Today, we're joined by Rohit Bhargava, someone who's really well known in the Australian startup ecosystem, someone who's really humble and always ready to help. And he's a podcast host, an investor, and a founder all at once. Welcome, Rohit. Thank you. And thank you for that warm intro. I should get you to, to do the introduction for my podcast as well. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you on the show. Before we talk about your podcasts and your investments and your founder journey, tell us a bit about yourself and your background. Where did you come from? I was born in India, moved to Canada when I was six months old. We moved back to India and then moved to Australia when I was six. And then we moved every 12 to 18 months. We lived in Iran for two years. Oh, wow. Before setting up shop in the most exotic place imaginable, Canberra. So I went to high school in uni there and then was in Sydney for two years and then been in Melbourne ever since. How was it? Like you've been in Canada, India, Australia, Iran, very different cultures, very different experiences. How has that shaped you as a person? A lot of my friends say that I'm the biggest risk taker that they know. And I just don't think that's true. And, you know, part of that is compared to what my parents had to go through in terms of leaving their family behind and all those sort of things like, Quitting a job to start a startup is nothing by, by comparison. But I think definitely, you know, my parents being willing to take a bet on themselves and kind of take the risk of explore something completely different and foreign to them um, has definitely been something that's kind of shaped a lot of my own perspectives on life and clearly in my career as well. I was always the shy, introverted kid at school. It helps you become so much more appreciative of people from different cultures, but also even in Australia, like we lived in Sydney and Adelaide, but we also lived in tiny country towns like Cooma. And so, yeah, it just makes you so much more appreciative, I think, of people's situations. So would you say it actually made you view your introversion as a strength? No, because I, not at the time, like I, I would say that I, I, I hated it. I mean, now I'm just very, I'm, I'm just very thankful for being forced to be into, in like a completely different environment. You know, in Canberra, that's the one place that I went to, the one school for an extended period of time and so a lot of my best friends now are my friends from high school up until that point so going to seven different schools by the time I got to year seven I remember I absolutely hated having to you know you finally become close to someone you know, become friends with them and then you're leaving straight away but I think it also forces someone like me to who's really shy and introverted by nature to put yourself out there a little bit more and you know put yourself out of pull yourself out of your comfort zone which is a good thing and so for Introverts that don't have this privilege of being in multiple places and being thrown essentially into the deep end, what are some tips to help them adapt? I mean, you know, I would say, and my mum would definitely argue that, like, even though I, was, I benefited from that, it didn't really change that much because she, I remember this story about her saying that she was terrified of when I was leaving high school and her going, how are you going to, like, do anything in a job interview or those sort of things? Like, you are, you just, you know, really struggle to speak to anyone. So, you know, I think one of the things for me, maybe it's shaped a, a lot by that sort of experience of kind of being forced to be out of my comfort zone of launching the podcast six years ago was a big part of it selfishly was like, I just wanted to get more comfortable and better at having conversations with people. I'm sure that there are better ways of kind of managing this, but like my approach has always been, you know, do things that feel really uncomfortable 
because that's probably going to be the way that you make the biggest change and is you know hopefully going to help you the most. Be comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? Yeah, exactly. How did you get into the world of startup? A large part of it comes from my mum, who she you know used to hand make a bunch of different things and would go to stalls and I would like go with her and see how she just went about the whole thing and the amount of time that she would spend and how she would sort of build a connection with people that were coming to a stall and all those sort of things. More recently, she had a cafe and a restaurant in Canberra and just, you know, did everything on her own. And she, you know, just went about doing a lot of those sort of things. Like, I think it's very hard not to pick up on a lot of that subconsciously when you sort of see that firsthand. What did you take away from her experiences? You know, I, I think there were definitely days that, like, went really well for her. But I think the things that I really remember... Like I remember one time in particular, she was so excited and spent so much time in handmaking this, like this kind of jewelry collection and set that she wanted to sell. And literally she sold nothing that entire day. And I imagine it must've been really heartbreaking for her to have to spend all of this time making it and having her two kids there and all of those sort of things as well. But I remember her just being so stoic about it and just going, you know, okay, like what can I learn from this and how do I do better next time? And she, she did. And so like, you know, I'm sure that I learned a lot from her in terms of the way, like she's super personable and very extroverted. And so I think there's a lot that I kind of took from her in terms of how she connects with people. But the things that really sort of resonated with me was like, you know, here's someone who has put in so much effort, effort and energy into something and it's not gone to plan, but it, it's not necessarily about that. It's how did they, you know, take in that experience and what did they learn and take away from that? And so, yeah, I've just got a ton of respect for my mom and, you know, just who she is and her resilience and all those sort of things around it. Whether we realise it or not, our parents, they're a huge influence in our journey. Yeah. Do you feel you've appreciated the hustle of your mum earlier or do you appreciate it now that you have been on your own founder journey? I mean, I, I still think she's the hardest working person that I know. Like that started when I was in high school and kind of, you know, still stuck around to the time when she was running her own cafe and restaurant. Like, yeah, I just don't think that I've seen anyone work as hard as her. And so I guess I, I understood her feelings around it, but I probably wasn't as appreciative in the moment of, everything that you would have to sort of go through. And I think having been a founder myself and going through the ups and downs of all of those sort of things, you know, I think it just makes you so much more appreciative of someone else going through that, and especially when it's your parent. And you said something to me before that what you noticed was the effort doesn't always equal the outcome. Yeah. You know, you see this a lot of the time when people get stuck with a particular startup idea that isn't going anywhere and they should you know, probably sort of reconsider particular things but there's this kind of some cost fallacy of like I've put in so much time and effort and energy and like I you know I just need to spend more time doing it and I think that it's a difficult balance in terms of understanding you know when is the right time to be sort of resilient and stick with something versus like when is it just not having any momentum at all and you're actually much better off doing something else what I have learned and like I'm taking to sort of investing in terms of looking at founders is things will never always go to plan but how do the founders handle setbacks you know deal with getting punched in the face with with things and you know continue to sort of make progress and learn around that sort of stuff and pivoting i think comes into play there as well like learning to adapt and react with pivoting there's a good and bad of that too like some i've seen companies that pivot way too often way too frequently mm-hmm. and others should probably pivot a lot sooner but with everything it's, it's a balancing act i think When it comes to your founder journey, so as I understand, you started in high school. Tell me first about one of your earliest startups. I literally just didn't want to ask my parents, you know, as most Indian kids can probably um, relate. 
like I didn't did you get pocket money i did it <laughs> yeah thank you <laughs> so like if you wanted to do something you have to like ask your parents can i please have some money they go no or what is it for or here's you know you ask for 50 bucks and you get 10 and so so you learn to negotiate very early on i guess i kind of just got sick of negotiating and i also like you know just didn't like asking my parents for, for things as well beyond everything else that they had already done for, for me and my sister but like it started because i just wanted to have enough money to go to the movies with my friends and buy popcorn drinks and like a burger or all those sort of things and not have to worry about asking my parents for, for money. And so I started this thing at school where I think it was with Domino's, it might have been Pizza Hut, where I developed a, a deal with them in Canberra and I said, hey, you know, I'm from the school. If I order it like in bulk from you every week, can you give me a discount on this? And so they gave me some like ridiculous discount on pizzas. And so I used to go around my school and just take orders from people at the start of the day and then call in, put in an order for 40 pizzas and this one guy would like come in with his car just full of pizzas in the back seat, front seat, in his boot and I'd carry them, carry them in and like sell them to, to people that had ordered them ahead of time. Other people were much smarter than me and that like they would eat half their pizza and then sell individual slices and stuff. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, a much smarter model than what I was doing but like for me it wasn't about trying to get as much money as possible. I just wanted like... You wanted pizza? I, I, I just wanted pizza just to see you. For me, it was like the easiest way to do that. How often did you eat pizza in high school? Probably way too, a lot more frequently than I should have looking back. But I mean, I didn't always eat them for myself. Like they were definitely for, for everyone else. Also a very good lesson when you overextend and you have, <laughs> you know, taken in extra orders from people when they haven't ordered and then you suddenly get put with a bill. How, how did you manage the whole supply and demand? Process? Well, I mean, there, there was there was one time that I remember that I'm like, oh, I generally order like 36 pizzas a week. So I'll just put in an order for 36, even though I haven't had, a, had the time to go through everyone. And then I don't know, something happens and like that particular day, a bunch of people were away or something. And I think I only had 28 people that had kind of like taking pizzas. And so I had eight other pizzas that I had to, you know, try and find money for. And thankfully I had enough money on me to like pay the person. But it was a very good lesson as well of just going, you know, you actually need to do, do the work all of this stuff as well you studied economics and engineering like every good indian boy yeah i dangled that dream in front of my parents for a little while how did you break out from it into your i think you did some work in environmental areas and then your first startup after that so after graduating from university i was essentially offered two jobs one was a full-time job that was in sales which was like for okay money, sounding out a friend that kind of worked there, which is why I sort of applied there. I should also kind of caveat this with like I was the, not a great student by Indian standards. 99% or nothing, right? Exactly. But I was definitely more interested in sports and apparently this pizza business at, at school. Did you consider a career in sports? I did. So I wanted to play cricket professionally, got into an academy in India and then busted my knee. Ouch. Yeah, which isn't, which isn't fun. So that was definitely my kind of like first dream. And there wasn't really thoughts of a career outside of that. After graduating from uni, I had a sales job. It was a full-time job. And I got offered another job, which was for an engineering company as a research assistant with the VP of the company, but it was only for three months. And it was for less money. And so I was like, oh, I don't know. don't really want to do sales. And the other job sounds more interesting, but, you know, like there's more risk associated with this. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I asked my parents what they thought, thinking that they would be like, okay, take a safe option, go the full-time job. But they actually said, you know, it's meant to be, it's meant to be, but like this is a better opportunity long-term for you. So you should definitely go take the other job that's for three months because you're just much more likely to get more out of it. And if it doesn't work out, you'll figure it out. But, you know, like again, just back yourself with this. And do you think that stems from their background of risk-taking? 
Probably. I mean, and, and it wasn't like, you know, one was forward, one was against it. They were both really supportive in, in terms of kind of making that decision. And maybe, you know, something that had to do with it was like, it was in engineering. So I think they, they were definitely a little bit sold on that. It was a bit of bias. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely a little bit of bias involved. A lot of people's parents take that huge risk of leaving their friends and family behind. And they came to Australia with literally nothing, to my understanding, like no contacts and no family and all of those sort of things. And, you know, tried to figure it out. Like choosing between two job offers is pretty meaningless in the in like that scale of, yeah. of decision making. And so, you know, I think my parents have always kind of thought about things from a long-term perspective. And I think that that's definitely sort of rubbed off on the way that I think about things. Actually, now that you mention it, when my family moved to Australia, my sister and I were very young children and my mum here and they moved here. And now that I think about it, that's a huge risk to take. Yeah. With two children, no jobs in a country that's completely brand new. Yeah, I mean, my, my dad didn't have a job and he didn't have a job for the first six months, I think. So I only found this out years later, but he used to go to the like state library in Adelaide for the first six months every single day just to look like he was going to an office to us and would come back in the evening while he'd like go and apply for jobs and those sort of things. You know, like, like I said, like I, I think that, you know, for people that are willing to kind of do that at that particular time with, you know, a completely different culture and all of those sort of things and have never set foot in the country before deciding to move here with literally, you know, a couple of suitcases worth of things. Um, it's crazy for them to, to do that. My sister and I are both incredibly grateful for the life that we have now because of that decision that they made and all of those sort of things. It's hard when that is the context that you sort of grew up in for that not to, you know, make you think twice about what are the, the decisions that you're making? It's it's about being grateful for it and then going, am I actually living up to those expectations or the, the high standards they've set as yeah. well? Yeah, and I mean, you know, to be honest, if it was up to my my mum especially, she, I would have a very stable job and all those sort of things. So I, I think the first time that she understood what I was doing and all those sort of things is when I joined Amazon and she was semi-devastated when I left. But, you know, like I, I think that... Yeah, at the grand scheme of things, like your parents always want what's best for you as well, and they don't want you to have to suffer and all of those sort of things. But, you know, I think that, you know, sometimes you also have to, you know, find your own path as part of that as well. I, I don't know. I've never spoken to my parents about it, but I'm sure that they were part of their parents, you know, telling them, why are you doing this and all of those sort of things that must have been tough for them. But, you know, sometimes you have to be willing to make your own mistakes and, you know, take everything that comes with that as well yeah in, in the search absolutely. of something better so okay you took an engineering job yeah so took an engineering job but I knew very quickly that it wasn't what I wanted to do long term so even within that three-month period I kind of threw myself into the startup ecosystem in in Sydney and so like went to this like I, I remember reading this article about this place called Fishburners and they were doing a competition called Startup Weekend which is a weekend hackathon I had no idea what it sounded like but I'm like this is really cool that sounds fun what a fun way to spend a weekend. And so went there, was, you know, thankfully part of a team that won the weekend competition. I'm like, ah, oh, this is like pretty amazing. And we're kind of like building this idea from scratch over a weekend. And I just started going to more and more startup weekends almost every night after work. I just got kind of hooked into the the vibe and the people and culture like back then. And for the first time I felt like I had found a group of people that thought in a very similar way to me you found your tribe i found my tribe and you know back in high, like like i said i mean i'm still very close friends with a lot of my friends from, from high school 
but the majority of them are in sort of like doctors and lawyers and engineers and are very, very successful in their career, but never felt on the same wavelength with them in terms of being excited about those things. Like, I really, really want to do this. And it wasn't until I, you know, found my tribe in the startup space that I had found that. And I just I got super addicted to it. I can completely relate to that. Like, I think all the while in the corporate world, I never felt like I belonged. And in high school, everyone took more traditional careers. Majority of my friends are doctors or lawyers. Yeah. Now, when I go back and visit them, they'd be like, oh, what you're doing is really cool. And I'm like, it is cool, but I hadn't thought about it from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, my, my friends actually, so this is fast forwarding a little bit. When I decided to leave, I quit my job and start my first startup. My friends held an intervention for me and said, you know, what are you doing? You know, nothing about fashion. Like, what if this doesn't work? All those sort of things. Like, all completely valid and in hindsight, probably. And how did you get into fashion? Actually, funnily enough, I caught up with my co-founder from uh, Stage Label, who was another high school friend today for lunch, and we were talking about this. I think we really, really loved the problem that we were solving, but none of us necessarily came from a fashion background. And so, if anything, we, we loved the idea of, like, how do you help make these creatives who are very talented and great at what they do, but really struggle with the business side of things, how do you make them much better operators and much more successful in the way that they sort of run their companies? And so what we did was platform where we help them market test their garments pre-production so we'd essentially help them get pre-sales collect data so that the 15 to 20 items that they have that they would create as part of their next collection they could go oh these three or four items will sell the best and there's these others that won't sell as well and will just be dead stock that you know we won't be able to move which means that we'll waste a bunch of money on production of them and also create a ton of waste and so we, we loved that problem from a theoretical problem solving kind of thing. How did you stumble across the problem? So I read a book called The Lean Startup, which is, you know, the startup Bible. And it kind of spoke about, you know, applying Lean Startup principles of testing and validating things before building them. But I thought, you know, why can't you just take that same principle and apply it to an entire industry? And I had a friend at university who started his own clothing brand, which is really cool and built up a lot of hype and you know, took off very quickly, but they, again, sort of overextended themselves very quickly and just had no idea what they were doing and then had to shut down the business not too long after because of just not very good business decisions that they made Mm. around things. And so that's where it sort of stemmed from was going, here's a principle that I like theoretically really understand how that works and why that's important. Here's an industry that I know from like secondhand experience and a friend who's gone through that quite closely. There must be a ton of other brands that are like that as well. And so that's kind of how it started. But I definitely didn't come from a fashion background at all. And in hindsight, it probably would have been useful if we had someone on the team who did. But yeah, we just, we actually ended up launching it at Startup Weekend. We had built up an incredible advisory board. We built up traction over that weekend. We were offered investment before the judges all, came out. All on that weekend. All on that weekend. And wow. so in the background, I was actually trying to launch a sports tech startup that was going nowhere. And I was trying to convince a former Australian cricketer to come on board as a business partner and was talking to Cricket Australia and Cricket New South Wales and I was just going nowhere for six to nine months and then suddenly over this weekend I'd made a ton of traction with this other thing. And would you say Stage Label was a success? Not from a, not from a business perspective. So we got the business up to a particular point where it works. So we were one of Uber's first partners in Australia. We were, part, we were doing our own runway shows at like Melbourne Spring Fashion Week and Virgin Australia Melbourne Fashion Festival and you know, we had a bunch of great press, so we were named as one of the top 10 startups to watch alongside Canva, and which, like, I think is hilarious wow. in hindsight. Like, what were they thinking putting us on that list? I think, from, again, from the outside looking in, there is a certain impression that you can get about businesses or particular things, but 
I think most founders know on the inside, everything is on fire all the time. And I think that our business model was like, we were really good at taking the business up to a particular point, but I think we'd hit the ceiling with our model. So our issue was that designers would get up to a particular point because we were leaning in with everything from helping with them with their pricing strategy and marketing and setting up a bunch of different things. And when they got to a particular point, we would find that they would go, well, cool, I can't have everything I need. I can jump off this platform and do my own thing, Mm. which if I was in their shoes, I would make the same decision, but it's very hard to build a business like maintain little and grow a business when your top sellers are kind of, it's hard to find in the first place. And then when they do, they kind of jump off the platform. And so we kind of got to a point where we were like, you know, what do we do? Do we want to keep sort of doing this? And I think we just very quickly sort of realized that, hey, we needed to just take a break and see how we felt. And the next day I just remember feeling like this huge weight had lifted off my shoulders. We had naturally sort of hit the ceiling of that. And I think that all of us had, much more ambitious things that we wanted to do with our life than realizing that we'd kind of tapped out for the business. And that's really interesting, right? Like, because when it comes to that, reaching that feeling of hitting a saturation point, there's the business that you need to consider. There's the founder's personal journeys. And then there's the macroeconomic circumstances. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like I made a ton of decisions that were not great with it. So like I put all of my life savings into into the business and like uprooted my life from Sydney to because the rest of the co-founders were based down here and all of that sort of things as well. But, you know, the question was, like, was Stage Label a success? You know, one of the big things that I have learned that I think people don't appreciate as much is they look at things in a very binary, will this work or will this not work? But I think that Stage Label was the important step that I needed to have to go and do everything else that I've done since that I probably wouldn't have done in the same way had it not been for that experience. And I think that a lot of the, a lot of the time people go, you know, I don't know, I have to wait until I get the perfect situation or the perfect thing to kind of leave out of this thing that I'm unhappy in and they go well was this a, was you know did I make my millions of dollars in the first year or not and if I didn't well then clearly this was unsuccessful I think what a lot of people don't really think about is that if you open one door it actually opens up a hundred other doors that wouldn't have been open to you if you hadn't opened that first door and I think that's important right allowing yourself to realize that that it's not binary it's not success or failure yeah. there is actually a lot more that comes after it and that you're thankful for that experience. From an outsider's perspective, looking at everything you have achieved, I'd still call it a success. Maybe it wasn't exactly where you wanted it to go, but I think you learned a lot from it. So, you know, after Stage Label, like, I was very broken. I found it so difficult to find a job because I'm like, what? Like, Did you want to you... get a job after that? Well, I, I was out of money. Yeah. Like, I remember I got to stage where I had... I can't remember exactly what it was, but like $32 left in my bank account or something. And I remember just applying for these different jobs. And I was like, I don't even know how do I describe myself because I do a bit of everything. And like, am I a marketer? Am I don't know what type of jobs are available to me? And so I applied for like everything. And then I remember thinking that like, I'm so desperate for money that as a backup, I remember my, my best friend telling me that he used to work at the casino when he was younger and he would get great tips off the back of it. And so I'm like, well, Worst case scenario, I'll go work at the casino. So I came to my worst case scenario. I was like, okay, you know what? I just really need the money. I should apply. And I did, like, I got rejected from the casino for a job. And I was like, holy shit, even my backup option, like, I, you know, that fell through. Like, what am I going to do? You know, again, like, kind of when it rains and pours, I got two job offers, like, a couple of weeks later at the same time. One was working at a big four accounting company in their startup division. 
doing this thing, which is like a little bit random, but like, it's pretty good money. When you have no money, it's really useful. And the other one was working at a not-for-profit organization called Startup Victoria as a community manager. I can't remember if I spoke to my parents, but I ended up taking the Startup Victoria job, obviously, yeah, running away from as much money as possible. So it took less than half of the pay that the other job offered. I don't like. I know this isn't what I want to do forever, but it's a great opportunity for me to meet with people and still be part of this ecosystem that I am really so attached to and I like my people and my tribe. And that is the thing, right? When the fire is lit, it's hard to let go. And I'm sure there are so many people out there who have this fire but don't know where to start or where to go. What would you recommend? What is really great now that wasn't the case eight or nine years ago is there are so many podcasts and resources, so many different funds, so many more companies out there that are hiring and all of those sort of things. Like my advice is just, you know, go out and speak to as many people as possible and be part of the ecosystem. Like I think, you know, that's how we got connected as well. Is you know, I think there are I think the startup ecosystem, which I keep hearing this a lot from people that come from a big company background and go to a startup event for the first time. It's just like I cannot believe how nice people are and how much they're willing to help. And it can be really jarring for people that don't come from that sort of environment. But like, even on the way here, I was telling you about someone that you should meet and all those sort of things. Like, it's just continuously just this really positive group of people that just want to go out of their way to like help other people. I mean, my experience at least has been it's a bit like a family because everyone is there to support each other and help guide each other when they need as well. I think the best parts of it are, like you said, like the family that you can sort of build of just, you know, James, who's now our investment manager, is someone that like we first got connected because of podcasting. We did a few things together and we always spoke about doing something together and now we get to do that. You know, there's there's a ton of just overlaps and friends and all of those sort of things that you can make. And it's just the my best advice is like, you know, just go to an event and just try and say hi to a bunch of people or reach out to people on LinkedIn and all of those sort of things. You'll be very surprised to hear how many people are willing to like just catch up for a coffee or just be willing to like sit down and chat or help or connect you onto someone. And for those who are like terrified of a no, how do you handle it? I mean, no, it's just part of life. I think that you kind of like have to understand that nothing's personal. Like my, my inbox is terrible, both on LinkedIn and emails and all of those sort of things. And so it's not never from like a place of like, oh, I'm just going to totally ignore this person or say no to them. Sometimes I just get really busy and that, that's like that with other people as well. And it's not, it's, it's never anything personal. And I would just say like, play the numbers game, you know, like I had to do this with the podcast where when I first started, I had to explain, like reach out to a bunch of people and explain to them what a podcast is and why they should sit down with, for an hour with me and record because this is six years ago. Like now, you know, there are so many different podcasts and things out there, but back then, you know, no one really knew kind of what it was or who would be listening or all of those sort of things. And so like, yeah, you reach out to a bunch of people and a bunch of people say no, and that's fine. Like, you just need one person to say yes. And that leads on to, like, more conversations and all of this sort of things. So, yeah, I, like, I wouldn't be worried about individual no's. Just if you keep getting only no's, think about, like, what is, what is it that you can change about your approach or your style or, you know, all of this sort of thing. So if you're doing that through email or LinkedIn, like, try and go to events and meet people in a different way. And it does change. The equation does change when you meet someone in person. Yeah. You feel like you already know them really well. It's, it's, I mean, and I did that with the podcast for the first, let's say, like four years up until COVID. It was a requirement that every single podcast had to be in person. And that was partly because of like audio control and I like, like controlling the situation and all of those sort of things. Now I do all of the interviews online because, again, of COVID, people focus so much on I'm going to get tens of thousands of listens of the show and, you know, I'm going to be really popular or famous or all of those sort of things. 
what I personally try and really focus on is like, how do I build that relationship one-on-one with the guests that I have coming on? Like, how do I make that a really important, special like relationship that we can build? Like, I do enough podcast episodes and they're of good enough quality. Like, I trust that the audience will build and all those sort of things. But that's that's not the end goal. And you know, I, I think it's just a byproduct of different things. And again, like, I feel very fortunate that I started when I did. When I honestly thought with a podcast that it would be a directory where I would say, say, hey, Pretty, like, go and listen to this episode, and I would send you a link. I never in my wildest dreams thought that like people would actually actively go onto all of these different platforms like look for a podcast and listen to it yeah and like you know now there's a context of like joe rogan selling his podcast for 100 million dollars and so and there's all of these people that build their you know entire businesses and stuff off the back of it which is amazing and all of those sort of things but i think sets the wrong expectation for people around something that is so genuinely long-term and compounds over time yeah that like i think you have to almost i think I, again i said like i try not to look at download numbers and all of those sort of things like i like, I don't know, maybe I have a very different approach to this than most people, but like, I'm like, you know, those things aren't as important to me and shouldn't influ- influence my mood in the way that it does. I just want to care about like the relationship and just trying to have the best possible conversation with that person. Personally, like, I love your podcast. I, I think I've told you this before, but if you haven't listened to the Startup Playbook podcast, please do. It's excellent. And I think you come from a view of empathy, which is amazing. Because so often you hear about the success stories and things like that, but you don't hear about the journeys that people have been on. Yeah, I mean, you know, I go, and to be honest, a big part of that was the third interview that I did for my podcast as well. So this is six years ago with a guy named Justin Bryer, who we'd spoken after they'd just raised $20 million. But so much of that interview was focused on the first four years of their journey where his co-founder was his brother-in-law at that time. And his sister would come to him every Christmas and say, are we going to have enough money for Christmas presents this year? Oh, wow. And, you know, I think that really shaped how I kind of thought about this podcast as well, that, like, he's someone hugely successful and, you know, again, has all these sort of things. And so that process and journey must have been so easy for him compared to what it was like for me with Stage Label. Everyone has really challenging moments and all those sort of things. And, you know, part of the podcast is you kind of learn that everyone has their shit parts of their journey. It's so true. You only hear about the highlights usually. I think that's the best thing about podcasts is it provides so much more context over someone's story and background and things. Traditionally, you know, before the podcast or before this kind of entire medium kind of got created, a lot of what you heard about companies was through traditional media which is let's take a couple of quotes from this person kind of create that story around something that's newsworthy like a fundraising announcement or all those sort of things but you don't really get to hear the insights and the story and the context behind all those sort of things and i think that my favorite thing about podcasts is that you get to hear more about particular things like it wouldn't make sense to kind of talk about pizzas as much as we did if it was an article but like you know we get to kind of dive into a little bit of the story and kind of layer parts of the story which hopefully make it more interesting and you get to have that deeper connection with someone and it's funny how much the pizza learnings apply to everything else you've done yeah very formative so your podcast has turned into a investment syndicate Mm -hmm. how has that how did you make that transition what made you want to get into investments i guess unofficially because of the podcast and the type of people that i interview obviously i have a lot of founders that reach out for help and guidance with growth or different parts of the business or often fundraising and so Unofficially, over the last few years, I've been ad hoc sort of introducing them to angel investors and VC funds for the right companies and sort of helped them on the journey. A lot of them went on to be really successful, and I wish that I had personally invested in those rounds. I guess I kind of got into uh, intentionally kept it quiet, pretty quiet over the last few years, but I started investing in two companies directly myself over the last few years. And 
just really sort of loved being more hands-on and kind of helping these companies at the very early stages beyond just getting to talk about them on the podcast. And so, yeah, essentially the uh, Playbook Ventures and our Playbook Angel Network that's kind of spun off the back of that is started off with friends and guests of the podcast. So again, we've been very low-key for the last couple of months, but we essentially have 31 investors So at the moment. So 31 of the former guests of the podcast leaning in and kind of essentially us investing together into early stage companies and sort of helping them on their on their journey, whether it's helping them closing out the rest of their round, finding lead investors, whether it's them, you know, helping them specifically with the growth side of things, whether it's particular doors or introductions that our broader angel network can sort of introduce and open to them. So that's been really fun. And now yeah, we've started to be a bit more public about things after the launch make announcement. And uh, yeah, it's excited to kind of share that and a bit more detail and kind of scale things out a bit more as well. Congrats on that. I think very exciting times. Thank you. Yeah. You're starting a new startup? Yes. Yeah. So this is not part of the initial kind of roadmap and plan, but sometimes when you just find a incredible opportunity, you know, it's very, very hard to sort of walk away. And I think for, you know, someone who likes being involved in a lot of different things at once, I think it's very rare for me to find something that I'm like, you know what, I could actually see myself doing this for 20 years years and this is the culmination of all of the things that I've been you know super passionate and excited about it's just moved really quickly we've just closed a funding round and um, yeah excited to sort of build that out what is it that motivates you every day and like what's your personal mantra that you like tell yourself to keep yourself motivated and resilient I don't think that there's a personal mantra per se like I, I think that I think for me, like I, I just like doing things that I feel inspired by and making an impact on things. And so I, I just feel super privileged about all of these sort of things. And it's just more, you know, you spoke about being grateful. Like I, I think that I just feel very grateful for these opportunities and kind of recognizing that it hasn't always been this way. And, you know, things have been really tough for a long time and I would have given anything to have any one of these things that I have now happen like many years ago. So it's it's not hard being kind of motivated or you know getting fired up to to do this like this is yeah this is exactly what i wanted and and so much more than i could have imagined so yeah just feel grateful and as you said for every door that closes a hundred more open i've had this before where obviously a bunch of you know people that are trying to get into startups or tech and especially when they come from a south asian background find it a little bit easier to kind of talk to someone who are, like who else sort of looks like them and kind of been through something similar as well and so I think, you know, the things that you're planning around the value event and all of those sort of things, you know, like I think things like this are so important and meaningful for so many people because, you know, I think especially from our culture, there is this stigma around like having to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Going down the trodden path. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it can be very difficult and trying to, you know, like go out and do something a little bit different. And I think like, you know, what you're doing and, and those types of events just make it so much easier for people to feel comfortable doing that. And I think that's so important. Thank you. And I really hope it does make a difference. But hearing from people like you who are superstars of the Australian startup ecosystem, I think will help others keep that fire burning, essentially. Yeah, also, I would say, like, what I kind of took away from that intervention that my friends had for me was, you know, they're actually 100% right with all of these sort of things. Like, I don't know. But the reason why I never think of myself as being a super risk taker is, like, I always weigh that risk against if this works, this is amazing and this gets to be everything that I want it to be and so much more. If it doesn't work, I'll just come back and do what I was doing before anyway. So like, what is the risk? It would be a shame to look back on your life and go, oh, like if only I'd, you know, done this thing that I really wanted to do. So try it instead of just think about it. 100%. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rohit. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Startup Power Show. If you had a blast listening to this episode, come on board and join our incredible cheer squad. Spread the startup love by sharing the episode with your friends, leave us a review, or drop us your valuable feedback, comments, or burning questions. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll shine the spotlight on another startup superstar. I'm Preeti Mohan, and I look forward to seeing you next time.